Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. Okay, well, we're going to pray and we'll jump in. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I'm just so grateful that it's sustained all the centuries to get to us so that we could have the Bible and we could know what you're thinking, we could know what you're feeling, what you say about different things, and we could even know the future because you wrote so much about what's coming in the word for us to be able to digest and process. And I pray tonight that you would give us grace as we look at the time period after the millennium Would you give us insights and allow our understanding to be enlightened, that we could enjoy this and get clarity about our future in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a a book of Revelation. Our session tonight is entitled After the Millennium, and it's because we're going to study after the millennium. And uh, for those of you who uh, need notes, they're being passed around. There's also copies available uh, on the website. If you want to click on the uh, recent teachings tab, um, you can click on tonight's message. And the notes will be available to you there, too, for those of you who are joining us online. Um, Well, the millennium. We've looked at that uh, for a few weeks. We've spent a little bit of time uh, dialoguing about that thousand years. That's what millennium means. It just means thousand years. The thousand year reign of Christ, but when that thousand years is over, uh, that is not the end of life. That's really a new beginning. And what we studied in the last session was the great white throne judgment moment that occurs at the end of the millennium. And it also serves as a transition, not just of the end of the millennium, but of the start of the age that begins after the millennium. And I know this is a bit of a interesting idea to be thinking about a thousand and twenty years into the future or a thousand and however many years we got left before Jesus comes back I don't know is that 20 years maybe I don't know but whatever however long it is before Jesus comes back then there's gonna be a thousand years after that and now we're talking about after that and so I recognize that is a bit uh, forward thinking Uh, But it's in the Word, and the reason it's in the Word is so that we can understand it, so that we can get rooted in it, because these realities have power on the human spirit when we understand them. You know, so much of uh, the New Testament uh, is encouraging us to live in this world, but not of it, to be living for another age, to be, you know, thinking on things above and not on earthly things, those kinds of concepts. Well, this is the kind of material that we need, that the Word of God is full of, In order to be able to actually think about things above, to not be rooted only in this world, but to have one foot here and one foot into the next. And so uh, this next age that we're going to talk a little bit about tonight, uh, it's mysterious, it's wonderful beyond imagination. There are some details that are known. There's a lot of details we just don't know at all. In fact, I would bet we know only a small fraction of the details that will be some of the most important parts about the whole storyline. We don't have any clue about yet. But we are given some details. And to start with, it's the great white throne judgment that ushers in this next age. Now, just as a point of reference, if you're not familiar with this, Isaiah 45 and then Ephesians 2, talk about coming ages, multiple 
Not just one. Not just the millennium. But after the millennium, then there's something else. And after that, then there's something else. And after that, there's something else. Look what it says, Isaiah 47, I'm sorry, Isaiah 45, 17. You will never be put to shame or disgraced to ages everlasting. Ages. So as many minutes as there are in eternity, there are ages. Ages everlasting. Right? One after another, after another, after another, forever. And uh, that's just a pretty wild idea. Ephesians 2, this is Paul, who had profound understanding of the word uh, of God that had been written up to his point in time, the Old Testament. And he also had profound understanding about what New Testament Christianity meant, what it meant to be a believer in Jesus. He said this, said that in order that in the coming ages, God might show the incomparable riches of his grace. That actually, it's the future ages where we get to then be exposed to the incomparable riches of his grace. That the incomparable riches of his grace are actually reserved for ages past the one that we're living in. I mean, that means the really good stuff is still way far out. That's just incredible. When you start to think about that, it, it kind of makes you smile a little bit. I mean, it's, it's something to touch the human spirit, and it's part of the reason that it's in the Word is for us to understand ages everlasting. Ages to come is when he reveals incomparable riches of his grace. We have the most bright future ahead of us. It is incredible and worth getting lost in the thought about it. It is a beautiful future. Now, as best as I know, uh, and I didn't do any like deep theological uh, you know, research. My just scan research was that there's almost no study at all whatsoever on this age that we're looking at tonight. So there wasn't a lot of study to, do, to be done because in my little bit of effort, I couldn't find anything on it. So the reason I say that is, as best as I know, it's not named. So the next age is called the millennium, but the one after that is not named as best as I know. And if it is named, it's just named by some little group over here. It's not a, a common theological concept. Uh, so there's no term, uh, terminology for uh, that period of time. So I'm just calling it the second age of eternity. And that term may be totally wrong or bad, but I'm just going to use that term tonight because the first age of eternity as we kind of head into the future, I'm calling the millennium. And this is the one after. It's the second age into eternity. And if you don't like that term, it's not a theological one or a biblical one. It's just one I'm needing to use to define what we're talking about here. And so if you don't like it, make a better one and email me. All right, so the second age of eternity... Uh, one of the reasons that I do like that term is it really helps set the uh, expectation of progress. It sets the expectation of we're still in eternity, but we're moving forward. We were just in the millennium, and now we're taking new ground in the second age of eternity. If the millennium is the first age, if the millennium is kindergarten, what does first grade present us with in the ages to come? So the second age of eternity, what I'm calling this, it's, we have an unbelievable future. This is a, an idea worth getting stuck on. We just read the passage about the incomparable 
riches of his glory being expressed in future ages. Look what 1 uh, Corinthians 2.9 says. I just want you to imagine this as part of the distinction, part of the reality of this second age of eternity. 1 Corinthians 2.9. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Very forward-thinking concepts. In this second age of eternity, we are going to experience things that no eye has seen and no ear has heard, no mind has been able to conceptualize. No mind has thought it up. That is a profound concept when it says no mind. There have been some smart people over the centuries. There are some brilliant theologians on the earth today. And Paul says, no mind has conceived the things that are coming in the second age of eternity and the one after and the one after. One point here as we dive in is the forever expansion of God's government. Now, when we studied the great white throne judgment, that was, you may not have thought of it this way, but that was a significant upgrade. That was a significant uh, monumental moment in the progression of government uh, related to the way that God orchestrates his purposes and his government on the earth and really even in the universe. The great white throne judgment and the details that were dealt with there and the new administration, the new order that goes into place at that great white throne judgment from that point forward was pretty significant. As big of a leap forward as that judgment was in relationship to the government of Jesus expanding and being expressed in expanded ways, I have a feeling we're going to have some bigger aha moments in the future. The reason I say that is because Isaiah 9 verse 7 says of the increase of his government and of the increase of his peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Just that concept, increased government. You know, we think in, uh, in our culture, big government, you know, bad, don't, don't touch my stuff. Don't raise my taxes. You know, just stay out of my life. Let me do my thing. Well, of the increase of God's government, there will be no end and everyone will think every new idea he comes up with as a way to be bigger government, we will all celebrate it. We will all think it's the greatest idea ever because he will continue to express expanded works of his governmental infrastructure. And we will look at it each new age, the things that he introduces, we'll look at it such brilliant ideas. We'll see it expressed that way. So as we talk about this second age of eternity, <coughs> we want to be imagining the increase of his government. <coughs> All right. <clears throat> so many details remain <coughs> that were put into place during the millennium. So Jesus comes, he takes his throne, 
<coughs> he establishes the millennial government. And when he does that, he puts infrastructure into place. There's a lot of things that uh, take place during the thousand year reign that were specific for the millennium, but many of them carry over into the next age and some of them carry over into all the ages that follow. <clears throat> I want to give you just a few of these because as we talk about the second age in eternity, we're looking at some carryover realities from the first age. And it's just an important detail because as we're talking about that next future age, we want to get as much detail, at least I do, I want to understand it as well as the Word of God would permit me to understand it. And then ask the Holy Spirit for divinely inspired imagination to understand things that I don't understand. Well, a big piece of what will be in that second age in eternity is carryover realities from the millennium. First, Jesus is still king overall. That didn't change. Jesus, uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ is over but the reign of Christ is not over. There were specific details he was accomplishing during that thousand years. He will be king forever. Look what it says, Psalm 29. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. That's the same peace that will have everlasting increase that we just read about in uh, Isaiah 9. Second, the millennial kings are still in place. Remember we said there's going to be actual nations? Well, look what it says here. Jeremiah 17, 25. Then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this city with their officials. They and their officials will come riding in chariots and on horses accompanied by the men of Judah and those living in Jerusalem. And this city will be inhabited forever. It's talking about the city of Jerusalem, but I think that what we're looking at is actually a prototype of other cities in the earth because what's being described here is the governmental leadership of Jerusalem forever. We're being, we're being told the details of how Jerusalem will be run. Now, this passage is probably taking place in the millennium. That's, that's probably what is occurring there as, as a baseline. But it says that the city will be inhabited forever, and the implication is the details that I just gave you about the way that the city is going to be run are going to be in place forever. And there's going to be governmental leaders that are over uh, those cities. Now, just as a side point, I don't know how all this works. You know, we've got the establishment of a kingship in Israel. The, the, uh, the people, they said, we want a king, we want a king. So God gave them a king, King Saul. Now, the way that that was supposed to work forever is King Saul was supposed to serve God and then have a baby boy. And that baby boy was supposed to grow up and be the king. And that king was supposed to serve God. And then that king was supposed to have a baby boy. And that baby boy was supposed to grow up and serve God forever. It was supposed to be the lineage of the, of the line of Saul. That was what was supposed to happen. But Saul didn't serve God. And so God said, you know what? We're actually going to change the kingly line I, God, I'm going to cause a coup within my nation. There's not going to be an upset. It's not going to be some rebellious king coming and trying to raise up and take the kingly line. I myself am going to install a rebellion. I'm going to change the kingly line. So King Saul, you're out. Now King David, you're in. And then it's through King David's line that the kings would then uh, uh, come into pass. Now, the reason I bring that up 
I recognize the reason for that particular dethroning of a kingly line had to do with the rebellion of Saul. But what it does say is, if God wants to, God can change the kingly line. That's part of what gets communicated in that reality. Why do I bring that up? I don't know that all of the kings in the millennium are going to follow the, uh, the, the traditional kingly lineage concept of a king is put in place and his son becomes the next king and his son becomes the next king. Maybe that's exactly how it'll go. Maybe not. Whatever the case is, during the millennium and then after, there will still be kings giving leadership to, to nations. And I think that each of those nations is going to only grow increasingly more um, uh, pointed, uh, increasingly more uh, uh, unified and, and purposed. Uh, I'll give you a for instance. I'm imagining, and I don't know that it's going to go just this way, but perhaps if I say it, it'll help kind of uh, inspire some divine imagination. I am imagining as the centuries go on after the millennium, God has got purposes for this nation over here and resources he's funneling to them and wisdom that he's giving them that's different than the nation right next door that has different purpose, different wisdom, and different resources. So maybe this one's supposed to really be in charge of, you know, what does the new heavens and new earth project look like? And maybe this one is really supposed to be about space exploration. And maybe this other nation is supposed to be about, I just think that the Lord is going to have increasingly uh, uh, more refined purposes for nations that are going to actually make the nations more distinct as opposed to everybody just all kinds of, you know, intermarries and everything is all just blended and nobody's, there's no nations and no peoples anymore. I think that the Lord has reason for those nations and that their destiny is actually going to get clearer as time goes on. All right, the home of the resurrected is still the new Jerusalem, still heaven. So when the next age starts, the second age of eternity, it's not like Jesus goes, oh, all those houses I built for you guys upstairs, those don't matter anymore. I know that's where you were living for the last thousand years, but we're just gonna do away with that. No, those purposes were eternal. He built them eternal dwellings, it says. And so with those eternal dwellings in mind, the saints are still going to have their permanent residence in the new Jerusalem. <laughs> so that's a detail from the millennium that's going to carry over. I put on here, we're still going to be priests. I gave you some of the verses. Why? The kingdom of God is still going to advance. Look at Daniel 6, 26. I just want you to think about the kingdom of God as best as we understand it in this age. Now, as best as we understand it in this age, the kingdom of God has much to do with the advance of the gospel. When we think about the kingdom of God expanding, we think about the kingdom of God moving forward. It's not the only thing, but it is a central point to the, uh, to the expansion of the kingdom of God on earth. But there is a time coming where there won't be lost people anymore. And the subject of the gospel, as far as like trying to evangelize the lost person, there aren't going to be lost persons to evangelize. But the kingdom of God will continue to advance in new and beautiful ways that no eye has seen, no mind has conceived. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. 
The, the work, the expressed taking over an expansion of his government, of his, of his kingdom, there will be no end. It will continue to grow and expand. So that's a part of the millennium that's going to carry over into the next age. Gave you a little bit there on the lake of fire. We're going to keep going, though. And skip down to uh, number three. New details about the second age of eternity. So we were just covering old details that carry over. Now we're going to talk about some new stuff. Some stuff that has never been before. Number one, there's going to be a second resurrection. We haven't even experienced the first resurrection yet. There's going to be a second one. And I would go as far as to say <coughs> that second resurrection will be uh, as looked forward to by those to whom it will apply as the first resurrection, except all the wicked. They will not be happy about that. But there's going to be plenty of people that are going to be born during the millennium that are going to love God and they're going to die. And they will not receive a resurrected body because they don't receive a resurrected body until the second resurrection. Look what it says. They came to life and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So there's going to be a lot of people that are dead during the thousand years. And they will be looking forward to a second resurrection, I think in a sort of way that you and I look forward to the resurrection now. We're looking forward to when Christ comes, there is a resurrection of the dead. I think those that die during the millennium are going to have a similar thought process. There's going to be a similar expectation that at the end of the, uh, of the thousand year reign, they're going to get a resurrected body. <clears throat> Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. Until this time, Satan will never have spent a day in his life in the lake of fire. Not one day. But at this time, it says when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from prison and, after a little bit, will be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had already been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the beginning of Satan's torment. The beginning of Satan's torment doesn't happen until the second age of eternity. That's one of those uh, things that's new. What else? There'll be no more pain. This is the wildest thing. During the millennium, there's going to be pain. Less, but lots. There will be plenty of pain during the millennium. Okay? In fact, it says that the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations to be distributed during the millennium. The only reason a nation needs healing is if a nation has pain. During the millennium, there will be pain, there'll be plenty, but it will be reduced from what we're experiencing in this age. But the second age of eternity, not so. Look what it says. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. The Father is coming to wipe away every tear, every pain, and every cause of pain. During the second age of eternity, there's no more pain. This is a very strange concept for humans. We are well acquainted with pain. Pain, emotional, physical, <clears throat> even spiritual. I mean, we experience all sorts of pains. Never again in the second age of eternity moving forward. That is cool. And not only that, it's the Father. I love the picture. I love the language. You just, John the Beloved gets this language and he goes, the Father will come 
And with his big godly finger, he'll wipe away every tear from every eye. He gets very personal and intimate in dealing with this transition. He says the father will wipe away the tears. He says there's no gonna, not going to be any more pain anymore. We have no idea what that's like. That sounds awesome. Well, part of what occurs in that wiping away is there's no more sin. Sin causes pain. In fact, the only reason there is pain is because there's sin. In the garden, they sinned and so entered in pain. In fact, when you go and you read the description of what happens as a result of the sin that happened in the garden, Genesis 3, I think I gave you the, uh, the verse for you to go uh, look at the passage if you want to. In that passage of time, the curse that God gives both man and woman, both of them, it's pain. The pain is a result of the sin. When the pain is gone, the sin is removed. When Jesus, or when the Father comes and he wipes away every tear from every eye, there is no more sin occurring because sin causes pain. Sin is the source of pain. And there's no more of it. He says there's no more. That is a powerful reality, and it's a prerequisite for the Father even be able to come to the earth because if there was sin, he'd have to deal with it. But because it's been wiped away, he can now cohabitate with mankind in the earth, on the earth, in perfect harmony. There'll be no more death. During this period of time, the concept of death, dying, and dead is done away with. No more death, dying, dead. We have no grid. That's, it's so such a human thing. Even Adam and Eve, presumably, were going to die eventually. I mean, we just, this is a very odd idea. There's just, there's no more death and dying. There's just, there, it's over. And so at this point now, there is never again going to be a person die. There's never again going to be the pain of death. There's never, it's, it's gone. The concept, in fact, pay attention to this. The concept of death is thrown into the lake of fire. Death is thrown into the lake of fire. Yeah, just burn that up. What's that? Doesn't matter. It's gone. Well, wasn't that like a really big part of being human? Was. No more. Death is gone. We don't have death anymore in the second age of eternity. Death is an old, over, gone, done thing. And the power of the second death has no uh, a place and no power over those that uh, are living in that next age. The power of death is done at the great white throne judgment because the power of death deals with all of those that have been wicked up until that point. They're finally dealt with and it's over and then death is thrown in the lake of fire and it's burned up. There's no more death. A new order of things begins. Perhaps the biggest statement that can be made about the second age of eternity is that it is described as a time when the old order of things passes away and God institutes a new order. This is an interesting idea. This is God who's the one that created the first order. He's the one that came up with all the details and now he says, you know what? I've got another plan. <laughs> says it this way in this whole wiping away of tears and such it's not just a getting rid of the bad it says it'll wipe away every tear there'll be no more death mourning crying pain 
before something is occurring. The old order of things has passed away. So much is said in that statement. That is a loaded statement, a loaded phrase. The order that has been, the only order we've ever known, the only order that's ever been written about is the way that mankind operates. That order has passed away and God has a new upgraded plan for the age ages to come, starting here at the second age of eternity. First thing that happens, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It comes and it physically rests on the earth. During the millennium, the new Jerusalem was visible from the earth. It was in close proximity to the earth. There was dynamic interaction with new Jerusalem, uh, heaven, and earth. But at this point, heaven comes now to geographically set itself on the earth. That's never happened before. Now, I have a thought about how that occurs because one of the, th the details that is a uh, uh, conflicting reality is the places that are told to have eternal uh, significance, eternal purpose, that's what I'm looking for, the cities that are we are told in the Bible, this will happen in this city forever. This nation will do this for, you know, for the generations to come, ages to come those sorts of language points, there's a lot of those places that would get squished by New Jerusalem coming and squishing the earth. Now, here's my theory. I think the temple that Jesus builds during the millennium, it's gonna be the most magnificent structure that's ever built. I think this temple is the central building block, think Legos. I think this temple is the central, though not only, is my opinion, the central building block, which will attach perfectly to the bottom of the New Jerusalem. I think there's going to be holes cut or already there, windows, some version that's actually going to set perfectly atop of the temple Jesus builds. I promise you this. The temple Jesus builds is not going to be destroyed by his old home. Okay? It's not going to come and crush the millennial temple. It's going to fit perfectly into it somehow so imagine just my dumb idea imagine lego blocks that are perfectly set up and nobody knows it yet that this piece fits perfectly with this piece and now new jerusalem comes and sets upon the millennial temple and it's going to work perfectly it's going to allow perfect access up into the first floor you know of new jerusalem it's going to be just this perfect connection and i think that there's probably going to be structural points like that in many, many places that will allow the base of New Jerusalem to rest on the earth, but in a way that doesn't crush the cities beneath it, okay? If that's true, which I think that it is, there's gonna be a lot of building projects necessary during the millennium, and that'll actually be part of what gets built during the thousand year reign of Christ as the earth is made ready for the coming of the Father and the coming of New Jerusalem. I know it's a big idea, but I'd rather throw out ideas that are big and have you go look at your Bibles to try to prove them wrong than just say a bunch of dumb stuff up here. Next, the Father dwells with man. It's never happened before. I mean, not in this age, not in, not in this time frame. When he was with them in the garden, 
The relationship was new. It was fresh. There was destiny. But now we're thousands of years later after the fall and redemption of man. And after now all sin has been forgiven and wiped out and every tear has been uh, wiped from eyes and uh, the uh, all, all sin cleansed and the father comes to dwell with man on the earth. Just like he always wanted the purpose. I just imagine the father getting really giddy about that day. You know, as he sent his son off from heaven to become a man to be slain as the lamb, that was a moment in preparation actually for this one. The father has plans we know nothing of. The father is constantly strategizing about the future and using moments of today to prepare for things in the future. <clears throat> so in fact, the, the incarnation of Christ was part of the setup for this moment. So that God could come back and dwell with man. Because he very much wants to do that. Also, when he does, he's bringing the holy city with him. He's bringing his home to the earth. And there'll be this dynamic convergence. Everything will be made new. I think this is an important thought. A couple of verses here. Revelation 21.5 and then 21.1. He was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. Well, sometimes people ask the question, so is this going to be a completely new planet earth <clears throat> and a new heavens, or is this a renewal? I think renewal is the only option available, and here's the reason why. It says he's going to make new not he's going to make new stuff. He's not going to create a new heaven and create a new earth. And he's going to uh, uh, make uh, all things new things or create new things. He is going to do what he's always done and he's going to redeem the things that he's created. He's going to do what he's always done and he's going to make better the things that have gotten the stain of sin, the stain of corruption. He's going to continue to create you know the the newness of it this idea of a uh, a new creation when we come to Christ it's inarguable that we are new but we look the same we're still the same height still the same eye color there is destiny that God has that is eternal purpose for both heaven and earth. And there's countless verses. I didn't give you here because my purpose was to do something different. There's countless verses that talk about the eternal nature of planet earth and specific geographic locations on it, as well as the eternal nature of heaven, eternal nature of the heavens. The reason that all that matters is it means that it can't be that God looks at earth and goes, you know, I know I made you and said it was good, but I was wrong. You're not good. I need a different one. So you're gone, Earth 1. Now we need Earth 2. Earth 2 is better. I really thought about it. He's going to renew Earth 1 because that's all there is, Earth 1. And he's going to make it better. He's going to renew it. He's going to make all things new. He's going to go around to every piece. It's all part of the new order. It's all part of the ways that he's going to make it all better. Part of his purposes, and this is another one of those really intriguing ideas about the second age of eternity. In the second age of eternity, he gets rid of the ocean. This is part of the new order. It's part of the way that he operates. Now, the purposes that the Lord has had, long-standing purposes, for the majority of the earth's surface to be covered in salt water is going to shift. 
During the second age of eternity, the majority of the earth's surface will not be covered in salt water. That's going to be part of the way that he's going to make things new. He's operating according to a new order. There's going to be new things in place. When you start to line up all these details, you just go, man, the millennium's cool, but whatever this second age of eternity is, it's even cooler. We get the Father. He makes everything new. It's a new order. This is going to be incredible. All right. With all that, let's break up into groups for some discussion. Luke, how many groups we got tonight? Three groups of six to seven. And if you're a group leader, uh, put your hand in the air for me. All right, great. Uh, Luke Cooper, if I can get you to move over here. Uh, Andy in the back and then Luke Fredenberg, you're there. Group six to seven, break up. Let's have some conversations and then we'll come back and do a little bit of Q&A at the end. All right, we're going to go to our uh, time of Q&A. I'll repeat the questions so that we can get those recorded. Um, I'm going to start off, actually, I caught myself on something. I went back and uh, just had a thought about uh, Genesis 2 and uh, remembering the garden account. And uh, Adam and Eve would have never died because they hadn't eaten the tree. And the promise in uh, Genesis 2.17 is, if you eat of this tree, or rather it even says when you eat of this tree, then you'll die. And so Adam and Eve would not have died. So the whole concept of uh, the, the, the death, uh, the concept of death entered in at sin. And so when the removal of death, it's the removal of sin uh, at the, uh, the end of the millennium. So, okay, well, let's go ahead and start here. Okay, where does the water go? Um, so uh, there will be no more sea. Where does the water go? Well, I, I haven't really thought much about it, but what we do know is that um, at the time of the flood, a whole lot more water entered into the crust uh, part of uh, Earth's reality that was previously uh, some sort of protective water covering in the air. Uh, so it's possible that it goes back for purposes that are second age of uh, eternity sort of reasons or realities. The water has to go somewhere. The water can't just not be. Uh, a thought that I have that I I don't have any verse to point to except that I'm really committed to this colonization thing. And, uh, and after Earth, the increase of his government just has to keep adding and growing and bigger and more. And, and there's a whole universe out there. It's impossible to me that we would not explore other places. And it's possible those places might need water. And so the thought process of bringing that water elsewhere uh, or exporting it for colonization of other planets I mean, as they thought. I think that the, the one that I, I mentioned a minute ago about back up into the atmosphere is, is the most biblically rooted one uh, because it's another one of those restore as it was sort of ideas. Um, but one thing's for sure, the water doesn't go anywhere. It's got purpose. And before it fell from the sky, it wasn't salt water. Uh, uh, you know, that's, that's what happened in the midst of all of the uh, elements of the ocean. And so uh, clean water, uh, or rather non-fresh uh, water, uh, is an essential part of life and the way God made things. And so we're going to need that fresh water for a lot of different purposes. But I don't know. Is it, he, if he drains the pool, that water's going somewhere. Uh, so whatever ideas we have about that next age, just make sure that water's included in it. It's just displaced because it's now no longer uh, in the area where the sea was. Also, it doesn't say there's not going to be any lakes or any fresh water on the earth. So there's no longer going to be a sea. And so any sea. And so it makes sense that there are still going to be places where there are 
bodies of water, maybe even significant bodies of water, uh, but not the concept of, you know, 75% of the earth's crust covered in uh, salt water anymore. So great question. Um, okay, let's go, Andy. So this is a pretty detailed uh, setup for the question. The, um, the New Jerusalem is uh, 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. So if it comes and sets down with, let's say, the center of New Jerusalem at have Jerusalem on the earth be the center point, that's going to extend a good ways uh, outside of Jerusalem. I haven't done the math to see how far uh, Edom is from Jerusalem, but I'm betting it's still under 700 miles. Um, so the question is, if New Jerusalem comes and sets down on the earth, uh, during the millennial period, the land of Edom, and this is an Isaiah 34 uh, reference point, the land of Edom becomes the lake of fire on the earth. It becomes this, the lake of fire doesn't exist right now. It, it, it's going to be lit. It's, it's, it's lit. It says, if you actually read the passage in, uh, in Isaiah 34, it says uh, the streams will, um, I forget the language, but the, the language is clear that a fire is being lit, will become, you know, burning, you know, pitch. I think that's the terminology, will become burning pitch. And so this, this lake of fire has not yet been lit. It will be lit during the millennium. The purpose of it, one of many, is as a permanent memorial for all those uh, forever to be able to see the lake of fire and be have the warning in their spirit. That's what happens when you disobey God. And more than that, it's actually even a, it's, it's a museum. I mean, it's a part of history uh, moving forward for forever of what had occurred in the judgment of God. And, oh, do you guys remember before when there was sin and all that? So Andy's question was with all of that as the backdrop, does it make sense that that will be another one of those openings uh, in the, the bottom floor of the, uh, the New Jerusalem when it comes to set on the earth? I think some version of yes, either that or... The, the first floor is, you know, so transparent, which we know that that's the case anyway, that there doesn't necessarily need to be an opening um, because you can view through it because it says that the, the walls of the city uh, are, are made of pure gold uh, as clear as glass. And so you would still be able to view it uh, while not necessarily catching the stench of what was coming up out of it. Uh, but there might be reason for that. To, I mean, the Lord's into smells, uh, you know, the fragrant offerings, and there's a lot of different things. There's, there's reasons to say that maybe, maybe not. But either way, it'll be visible because of the uh, uh, transparency of the walls of the New Jerusalem. So great, great question. Great. So um, uh, the concept of uh, the least in the kingdom and the greatest in the kingdom and uh, the, the judgment seat of Christ, it says um, that there will be those that will suffer loss uh, at the judgment seat of Christ because of the way that they lived their life not being congruent with, uh, with what Jesus called us to as uh, followers. And so the question is, in relationship to God wiping away every tear from every eye, uh, how does that impact the... Uh, the believer that just got done living for a thousand years being called least in the kingdom of God. Uh, how does that apply to them? Uh, relationship to the wiping away of every tear and, and such. Um, I, I think that the concept of regret, even during the millennium, with a resurrected mind, a resurrected body, a resurrected spirit, I think is going to be 
far more um, able to process the information from a truth standpoint than merely an emotional standpoint. So I think the recognition of I am least, that is justice because of what I did and how I lived my life. They are greatest, that is right because of the way that they lived their life and a resurrected mind that sees things the way Christ does. And so there's, there's something to be said about seeing things as he sees them that takes away uh, uh, some of the, the human emotion of it and, and makes things from a very justice, factual kind of a thing. So whatever him wiping away tears from eyes uh, looks like, uh, I think it's going to have far more to do with, in relationship to your point, with perception than it is like, okay, well, because you made it through the millennium, now everybody gets the same eternal rewards, everybody gets the same stuff. Because there's stuff that's talked about being allocated because of deeds and, and, uh, and actions and thoughts and withholdings of deeds, actions, and thoughts that are not going to be appropriated to the ones that didn't follow those rules. So it seems incongruent to me that God would get to the end of the thousand years and then just like level out the scales and like, okay, everybody's good now. I know I said I'd give you these things forever and that you wouldn't get these things forever. But now because it's a new order, you all just get the same stuff. I think that the guy that shows up as the least in the kingdom of heaven has the best life that anyone has ever had ever in the history of ever. Let's remember that. It's not like they have sad Tuesdays, okay? I mean, their day, their eternity is epic beyond epic, and God keeps upgrading epic, but that guy that lived for Jesus more uh, uh, wholeheartedly he is forever going to be shown the, the fruit, the wisdom of those decisions and forever will be benefited in a way that this guy won't be. And so, but again, this guy's got it really, 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 really good. And it keeps getting better with each age. So great questions. Very intuitive. Okay. Worship leader, you can come on up. All right. 101. We did it. Father, we ask you for increased measure of revelation as we study the book. And as we look at these, uh, these last few chapters and these last uh, remaining, whatever, 15 ideas, whatever it is, I pray, God, in Jesus' name that you would give us increased clarity. And that it would... This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.